Hello and welcome to season two of Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Lovemore. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to social entrepreneur, youth coach and founder of ADR Inspires, Marnie Simpson. At the age of 21, Amani was a victim of knife crime, where he was stabbed seven times outside a nightclub. The young entrepreneur has since overcome adversity and channeled his energy into educating and inspiring the youth of today on the importance of long-term thinking and fulfilling your potential. It was a pleasure speaking to Amani about his take on the knife crime epidemic in the UK and what we can do to support and inspire the next generation. Amani, firstly, welcome to the podcast. Can I get a picture? As you know, we're now in season two, and uh, it's nice to you know have you on. You're you're someone I've admired from a distance, and obviously all the great work you've been doing. So I thought you know it'd be good to to share that message and share the positivity you've been putting into the world. Thank um, you, Paul. Yeah, so pleasure to have you, and and hope we'll have some fun as Let's well. Do it. No, I'm excited. It's going to be a, a good conversation. Yeah, no, likewise. But um, so yeah, I just really wanted to start with early life where were you born and raised tell me a little bit about your your upbringing yeah so I was born in North London um in Enfield um my upbringing my mum and dad uh, they they provided the best environment that they could for me and my sister and my mum's miracle child and my parents miracle child so I was very spoilt for the first few years of my life and you know my, my mum and dad were very hard working dad was an immigrant from Jamaica came over his dad died super early, so grew up in a single parent household. My mom grew up over here, grandparents hardworking as well. My grandma was um, the, one of the first deputy head, black deputy head teachers in the UK. Granddad was a business owner. Um, and my dad, when he did start to work, worked for Lord Alan Sugar. So I had a, I come from good stock, as they say. Oh, wow. Amazing. And how would you say you found school as well? What was school like for you? Oh, man. School school was troublesome, man. School was, uh, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun, I'll be honest. Um, from five, I was bullied. I was bullied from age five because I moved from one school to another school. And um, that transition was super difficult. I also, my mum and dad also had my sister at the same time that I moved. So I kind of just fell in between the gaps, to be honest. I just, you know, trying to move into uh, a new school environment where, Maybe some of the, the other you know kids that were around me didn't have the same start as me. And so there was just loads of different kind of identity issues, trying to fit in with different types of kids, trying to be something that I wasn't, you know, trying to be all things to everyone. And then, you know, the, the, the kind of the feelings and the behavior and all of the things that I accumulated during that time just followed me all the way through school. So primary and secondary school wasn't a good experience for me. Lots of trouble, lots of bad reputation, lots of silly mistakes just silly stuff that I did growing up, man. And it wasn't, it wasn't fun to put it, you know, bluntly. It's, do you know what? I, I love that though, that you've got um, self-awareness enough, do you know what I mean? To identify, you know, kind of where it, where it went wrong and, and obviously now use that to your advantage in the long term. But did you, at the time as well, during school and, you know, you talk about trouble and all things, did you have, did you have any hobbies or any, any distractions, would you say? you tried to use to keep you on the straight and narrow? Not really. I wasn't really uh, cognizant at that time. I wasn't like, I wasn't, you know, I was just trying to survive. My biggest issue, I think, when you're that age is, you know, trying to make friends, trying to stay popular, you know, 
get it, but then you're you're kind of caught in. I'm caught in between different spaces, right? So I'm, I'm caught in between some of the ways that you know my school experience was and the things that were happening. I was caught in between what was going on at home as a result of the trouble I was getting in at school. So funny enough, I was having a conversation yesterday and I was saying like I didn't enjoy childhood. I haven't got many happy childhood memories um, post five. Before five, I've got quite a few. Um, you know, like just the times with my family, you know, but as soon as I hit, you know, that new school, I didn't really have anything that kind of kept me active or, or aspirational. I used to play plays that to me, I'm a gamer. So I've been playing games since I was young. Like my first console was, was Mega Drive and I still play PlayStation now. So I think that probably gave me like an element of escape, but nothing like, yeah, nothing else. Yeah, now to be fair, I went through a um a FIFA phase as well, but then yeah, just once I got over that, I don't, now I haven't really owned a console for years. But um, also in terms of like role models and people you looked up to when you were younger, who would you say were your role models and the people you aspired to be like? Great question, man. I, d- I didn't really have any like like my dad is obviously an amazing role model. My mum is an amazing role model, but because they were disciplinarians to me, and you know the people that would tell me off when I got in trouble. I never, ever really saw them like that. So I guess my role models became negative role models. You know, the, the, the man them that were older than me when I hit secondary school that had like a certain reputation. I grew up in like the 50 Cent era where like, you know, he was like, you know, one of the biggest names in rap. So his whole mantra of get rich or die trying just embedded into my, into my kind of way of thinking. And as a black man that looked successful, had girls, was confident, that's who I began to try and emulate. And then obviously grime and all of those different types of genres of music started to come around. So these are the types of people that I'm listening to and, and, and really getting influence and, um, you know, trying to identify with their experience and trying to make it my own. Whereas I guess the start that I was given was completely different to maybe some of the, um, the experiences of my peers or some of the people that I looked up to. I love what you've just said there about, you know, it's almost like you're a product of your environment, right? You kind of try to emulate what you see, what you hear, that type of thing. But going through that period you speak of after five, you're in school, you know, you're having trouble, you know, you're getting bullied, all these things. Would you say you felt like you had enough support or it was the lack of support that also impacted that journey for you? Yeah, it was a lack of support for me. It was, you know, and again, I don't, I don't blame my parents for that because they did their best with what they had. They didn't, I'm their firstborn. I'm not some, you know, they didn't have any other kind of experience of, you know, this is what we do with a child that starts to go off the rails, etc. There's none of that. So I didn't really have much support. You know, I didn't really have mentors in primary school, secondary school. Um, there, there may have been the odd person that tried to help here and there, but it just didn't, they didn't speak my language or it wasn't at a time where I was ready to hear that and like that, that kind of input and intervention. So I guess for me, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, looking back, I wish I had someone that kind of helped me with that transition into primary school or, you know, would have stepped in when I was making certain choices in primary school and said, you know, how are you feeling, Amani? Like, you know, what, what's going on in your head? Because that early intervention would have really done something for my self-esteem. You know, I, well, I assume so, right? I would have, you know, I feel like someone stepping in and kind of saying, I see you, I know what you're going through. This is how I overcame it. Here's some coping mechanisms would have really helped me to start making some positive choices. But, you know, our generation, I don't know how old you are, but our generation was the guinea pig, in my opinion. They learned a lot of things from what they didn't do with our generation. So this generation, 
you know, this generation now has mentors and interventions and stuff like that, whereas other, and theories that we never had. We were just bad kids back in the day. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah, I do agree with you that there's a lot more. I think today, even like seeing my little sister, you know, the support that's available in schools and things like that, you know, it's compared to, like you said, compared to when I was in school, exactly the same. Do you know what I mean? You, you were either a good kid or a bad kid. There was kind of no middle ground. Whereas today, I think there's slowly more of a balance and an understanding that, look, people can go either way, but you have to, you know, help them through that, that transition. Um, I think the other thing is as well is that, um, the, there wasn't, there wasn't, as I said, the, the theories weren't there as much. Now we're looking at like children's adverse childhood experiences or that kind of joint up approach of how to deal with young people. You know, if they're behaving in a certain way, then it's not just because they're bad kids. It's maybe they're dealing with something at home. And maybe those theories were around when we were in school, but they weren't as forefront. So kids like me, no one looked at the fact that I came from a, um, you know, a privileged middle-class black family. They just saw me as a black kid that was getting in trouble. And that was, that's it. He's a black kid that's getting in trouble. There was no other layer, you know? So I think it's important that, you know, the generation coming after that, and and it's really helpful for them because now people are going to see them from a completely, you know, three, four dimensional perspective, basically. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And also, just to add to that, I always think, right, even when you look at, like, successful people, the more you see, you know, especially with the ethnic minorities, black people, when you see a black successful person who comes from super humble beginnings, like a rough, traditionally, like, rough background you consider, make it to, you know, great places and achieve things in life, I think it it sends the right message to say, hey, actually, it's not about where people come from and their environments. People can grow up to be anything it's more about the journey they go on the support they receive the help you know as you spoke about your journey saying hey actually if i had intervention that could have changed the whole course who knows so so yeah no, I, I completely do agree with you on that and um you know for a period of time you went down the path of obviously like you know the route of dealing drugs you know so-called being a roadman and and you know living that kind of street life what would you say led to led to kind of you being like, you know, I'm going to be a roadman, do this. I'm going to really get involved. What kind of got you into that headspace? It was the influences. It was the, it was the soundtrack that I had to my life. It was constantly getting in trouble. It was constantly associating with those types of young people who were either on the cusp of that or were in that lifestyle, constantly just trying to be around those boys and girls from young. And so I, I, I just attracted it to me do you know what i'm saying like when i'm in school and i'm hearing about this area beef in that area i'm excited by that I'm, i want to know what's going on because that's so different to my world like my world my, i've got a stable family environment we go to church on sunday you know there's love in the house there's no drama none of my family have gone to jail but i'm seeing all of this exciting stuff and i'm like i want that and i'm i don't know myself enough to know that that's not what you really want you know so as I've got older, I've just created really bad habits. I've just, you know, little things like stealing or fighting or, or being rude or, you know, you know, whatever, just all of these things hanging around with the wrong people eventually just culminated into finding myself in situations where it's like, raw, like actually you're in the thick of this thing now. So, um, for example, um, when I was 15, after I left school with no GCSEs, I got arrested for having an imitation firearm, um, in a public place. And, that to me wasn't because I was trying to be a gangster. It was because I robbed someone because of peer pressure. And then his older brother 
basically was trying to threaten me. And then when I was at a friend's house, he had a BB gun and I was like, oh, can I borrow it just to play about in my house with it? But I just didn't compute that if I ever got stopped on the road with this gun, it's a problem. And so getting yeah. stopped with a BB gun, you know, because of something else is, you know, that's, that's a problem. And then now I've got a criminal record and, you know, now there's, it's just, it's just, as I said, small things that I did over and over again that had massive outcomes. And so that's how I got there. When I ended up, you know, selling drugs and being on the, on um, going to Cunch and stuff, it wasn't because I wanted to. Someone said, look, well, you know, do you want to make money? What 16 year old, you know, is going to say, no, I don't want to make money. And so I packed my bag and went in the car with some boys that I trust and ended up in Peterborough in a trap house. And they're saying, look, yeah, you're going to, you're going to sell some drugs and it's just survival instincts. And, you know, I just made it work. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, as much as I say, you know, it's a soundtrack and it's the choices I made. There was a lot of factors outside of that, that really kind of, yeah, like they, they, they affected how I ended up going down that path. Basically. I can't say it was family exclusively. I can't say it was school. It was loads of different things. Yeah, for sure. And would you say from that experience, that's probably made you value more the the importance of long-term thinking, right? I.e. this decision today, in, in essence, you know, when you're young, I feel like I was, this, you know, the same in the sense sometimes you make decisions and you, you just think about the moment, not kind of like the after effect and the repercussions. But, you know, now, obviously, looking back, you know that one a decision that you think is just, oh, it's just a today or, or a week thing actually can have repercussions that last a lifetime, years. Yeah, 100%. You don't see that when you're younger. Even when I talk to kids now and I'm like, what do you want to be when you're older? Sometimes they don't know. You know, they don't even see what's going to be past 20 or they don't see kind of how what they do today is going to affect them in the future. So I think it's it's just empowering young people as, as early as possible to really see that the small choices that they make today will really have a knock-on effect on what happens and what the outcomes of their lives are basically and I don't think anyone really broke it down to me like that you know they tell you oh, don't do this don't do that this is bad or but no one really showed me that you know this could lead here could lead here could lead there no one really broke it down like that but then at the same time, maybe if someone had, I probably wouldn't have listened to them anyway because I was so headstrong. So, but um, yeah, so July 2011, obviously you're a victim outside a, a nightclub, you know, stabbed seven times. I mean, I can only imagine what that's like. I've never been in that position, but you can only think it's probably the most horrendous situation and, and something you wouldn't wish on, you know, anyone. Um, tell us a little bit about the incident and kind of like the, the impact that had on your life from that moment and obviously looking forward? Yeah, so I I wasn't involved in a gang at that point. Or I, to be fair, I was never involved in a gang, but I was definitely not on road at that point. I, you know, turned my life around, got a girlfriend, gone to college, all of these things, started a business. I was actually promoting my business the night I got stabbed. I was, it was an events company for under 18s and stuff like that. And basically, I just got myself involved in someone else's argument. Someone else was having an argument outside of a nightclub about a bike I knew the guy whose bike had been stolen, but he had all of his boys around him. But because of habits that I'd learned from school, I didn't know how to mind my own business. And I was just like, what? Someone stole your bike? What? I want to try and get involved in this situation. But that wasn't my mission that night. You know, I, I, I wasn't there to get involved in beef. I was there to promote an event we had the week after. And so because I made that choice, I ended up coming face to face with boys that are obviously from that lifestyle they come out their house tooled up there was like 15 of them and I basically ended up coming 
kind of face to face with them and saying the wrong thing. I was trying to say, look, I'm older than you guys. I'm not the same age. These are like 15 year olds and I'm 21. And I, the words that kind of stumbled out of my mouth was I'm a bigger man than you. And as soon as I said it, I knew I challenged him. I knew it was a problem. And he just said, what? And he said, cool, let's done his dance. Let's kill him basically. And I will always remember that. And I, and even when I describe it, you know, looking back, I always, I don't know why I made the choices I made at that point. So, I, for example, I decided to run through the group of boys instead of running away from them. I don't know why I did that. Only God knows. And if I'd run away, I'd be dead now because it was a dead end. It was, uh, so not a dead end, it was a very long road and I'm not that quick. So I would have got caught. I would have got stabbed in my back, in my leg, whatever. Whereas because I ran through them, I ended up going towards the high street and the bouncer of the club seeing the jacket that I was wearing basically ran over and, and yeah, basically saved my life. And then when I was in the ambulance and my mum had come down and, you know, my mum, my dad, sorry, had come down and my mum was in the ambulance praying for me and stuff. Essentially, I was dying, bro. Like I was in and out of consciousness. I was like, you know, I wasn't in a good way. But I had this very surreal conversation with God. I said, look, like, if you're real, I need another chance. Like all this praying I've been doing in my life, all this church I've been going, like I need you to be real now. I need you to save me. I need another chance. And I said, if you give me one more chance, I'm going to live for you and I'm going to steer people away from darkness. And I literally had this rush of energy from my toes to my head where I just like literally kind of sat up and had this jolt through my body, electric jolt through my body. And I remember like just sitting up and being like very aware of what's going on and getting to the hospital and then, then basically checking me over and doing the scans and putting me into a ward. And then all my family's around me and everyone's crying, thinking, look, he's going to die. I wasn't in a good way. And then, yeah, the doctor came in maybe a few hours later and said, I don't know what to tell you, Mr. Simpson. Everywhere you've been stabbed, you should be dead or disabled. It's a miracle. I've got absolutely no idea. They've missed everything by millimeters and you can go home tomorrow. And I said, what? I said, no, nah, what? Like, I couldn't believe it. I remember just breaking down with my dad. And then, you know, they showed me the jacket that I was wearing that night, a body warm, and it was ripped to shreds, and it had about 20-something stab wounds and marks in it and stuff. And I just knew that I was meant to be here for a reason. I knew. I knew that whatever it was that God had planned for me to do on this earth, it wasn't up yet. And I just, I had to obviously then make a decision not to go and become this you know, this guy on a vendetta trying to, you know, retaliate and stuff like that, which was very easy to do. My family and stuff were very angry. They were willing to ride out. They were willing to find these boys. And, you know, I just said, I don't want to do that because I love too many people. I'm, you know, I want to go another direction. I want to not, not necessarily forgive them at that point. I'd say, I wouldn't say it was like a, an awareness that oh, yeah, I forgive them straight away, but I definitely said, I love too many people for me to start a war that I can't afford to lose can't afford to lose it there's too many people that if this person gets touched then that's going to break my heart i can't do it so people will call me what they want to call me at the time and say oh why don't you retaliate oh man like oh they took you for a chief whatever but i'm still living and my family's still living and i'm doing my thing now so i give thanks for the choice that i made back then yeah no for sure and, and again i think that's a great lesson as well as they say sometimes in picking your battles and seeing the bigger picture right because because you, you're right in that moment anger your family everyone around you is amped up and they're like look we need to seek revenge but actually the right thing to do for you was what you did look at it and go right i'm going a completely different direction with my life and i'm going to serve a higher purpose than fighting you know people essentially who've got nothing to lose because i feel like 
for you to want to go and live that uh, street like life in a sense and i can only talk from a not an outsider's perspective but i never kind of got into that life so it would be kind of a, a bit naive as well for me to act like i know what it's like to be in those shoes but i always feel you know the fact that we're all given life itself is a gift you know the fact that we're breathing we're able-bodied we've got you know sharp minds you know you've got to put that to to good use and you're a to me you're a shining example of someone who's taken a situation that you know normally let's be honest look at the statistics right especially in the black community there's a lot of when you look at the news yearly there's like an obscene amount of young black men dying in london in the world you know so it's when i see people like you and you you're sitting there saying you know what i chose a different path it's good because i think hopefully that will hit one or two three four five kids who look at your story and go yeah do you know what i'm going to try and do the same because helping one person helps the next and and so forth thank you man appreciate that so in terms of the mindset shift as well after the stabbing so like you said you decided to go you you know go down a different path you already on a good path you know it's just unfortunate that this ended up happening you know during that period but what what was kind of the steps you took after the incident to say you know what this is what I'm going to do this is how I'm going to push forward do you know what? I went to I went to the the the, the yeah. I, I always use the example of like kind of going to the wilderness or going to the desert or going to the mountain right just I just went into isolation and to a certain extent that's a good thing to a certain extent that's a bad thing um, because I kind of separated from my, the friends that I had at the time, you know, I started to see certain things that would make me kind of feel like, you know, I can't really be around you like that. Yeah. My my girlfriend at the time had gone to university and, you know, outside of London and I wasn't living at home. I've been kicked out of my mum's house for something else. So it was isolation. But what I did is, is I, I became, I just went on a, a journey of personal development and, my method of doing that was business, was entrepreneurship. So because I, I basically, after getting stabbed, I shut down my, my, my enterprise called Aviard. I shut it down. I was just like, I'm not doing it no more. And then um, basically I went from that point to working in, a, in, a, in an estate agent. I was kind of doing it part-time before I got stabbed. And then I just went full-time and just kind of started a business, which is a whole completely different story in itself. But essentially me trying to build that business, all of the different processes of trying to be a successful entrepreneur, trying to be, um, you know, uh, trying to carry myself in a certain way, building that resilience, that self-esteem was part of my healing. So all the things that I, I used to struggle with, like rejection and stuff like that, I was going, I was making hundreds of phone calls a day on Gumtree trying to get landlords to say yes to me as an agent trying to rent their house. And so I'm getting every rejection you can hear. F off. Why are you calling me? Don't call me again. I'm going to call the police. Whatever you want to call it, right? And that process in itself is what really helped me to like just feel better about myself and to and to to see myself in a different light to maybe what I'd seen before. And although I'm dealing with like PTSD and um, you know anxiety and stuff like that and depression while I'm going through this process those moments of success and the small wins every single day was compounding into me feeling better about myself and that the higher up I kind of rose in my in my business and my field and the more success I was having year on year was the better I started to feel and you know it I guess for me that's where the mindset really shifted because I was just I was embedded in it it was my it was my life 
And that pro- it, like, I feel like God used it as a way to teach me about myself that I probably wouldn't have gone to therapy straight after. I probably wouldn't have done it. It wasn't natural for me. So that was my way of learning and healing and stuff, basically. Now, nah, fair enough. And then um, obviously you spoke about, you know, closing down initially, um, as you said, AVR. But then in, in 2015, you found AVR Inspires. Um, so, yeah, tell me about, you know, that company and, and the inspiration behind, you know, I guess this is 2.0, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of AVR journey, yeah. Yeah, 100%. So AVR is an idea I've had since I was 18. It was something that, um, you know, is basically it's a compound of two words, aviation and hard. And aviation is about elevating something that's not meant to fly and, you know, giving it um, wings, essentially. And hard is obviously about being firm and resistant to pressure. So when I came up with that idea, I always saw it as you have to elevate your mind from where it is. It's not meant to fly sometimes based on your environment. And so you have to make it firm and resistant to all the pressures that go on and go hard at where you want to go. You have to fly hard in that direction. So when I had that idea, I was like, bro, that's sick. Like, that's like, yeah, that's yeah. a proper brand name. That's something that I can grow with. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when I, I, I don't know what I was doing at the time, but I was so proud. And so when I had to shut it down, my heart broke because it was just like, this is what I've put all my energy into up to this time. Like, and I was scared to do it. I was so shook thinking that people were going to come and find my company because I was wearing my Aviard branded T-shirt the night I got stabbed. So all of these all of these things were going through my head. And then basically I went through a process with my business, with my property business, where things were going well, but I just started to see that I wanted to give back to young people. I wanted to you know, support young people in their journey. So I decided to slowly move back into the entertainment space, did a, a talent showcase, with a, a business partner of mine and then yeah literally aviard was launched then we did a we did a talent showcase um in enfield um and just just seeing the young people go from that place of low self-esteem to confidence giving them mentors giving them opportunity you know just the celebration element element of it i was just like i need to do this forever and so yeah aviard was born again and i decided to make it a community interest company instead of just a limited company which was all about um, you know, obviously the shareholders and stuff. I wanted to have a new model that was very kind of non-for-profit and, um, you know, like just very community focused and about young people. So yeah, now we empower young people through uh, digital media, personal development and enrichment opportunities like events or, you know, um, training and workshops, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I was looking at your website as well, just kind of get more of an understanding and just looking at all the campaigns and all the great things you've done. And I think that's one of the biggest, you know, even after the whole, uh, after the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And there's been a lot of uproar where people are saying, oh, look, we're tired of hearing, you know, people just speaking up and not enough support, right? You saw a wave of like big corporations and companies coming, but I still think what you're doing is far more valuable just based on the fact that, you're on the ground and you actually like connected to the community connected to the young people on like a face-to-face level. Cause I think a, a lot of the times, you know, the solutions always let's throw cash at it and hopefully it will fix it. But you know, it's been proven over the years with the way that kind of everything's gone, that this isn't just a situation and, you know, inspiring young people and getting them isn't just a financial, yeah, you pay X amount problem solved, you know, it needs voices and companies like yours to really be the catalyst, you know, to not only inspire, but it's, it's very different. I always say it's very different to hear or learn about something from someone like just you watch something and it's inspiring, but 
when you talk to someone who's actually been there and done it or lived it, it like hits you completely differently. Honestly, I, I say this because I've got a mentor and when I actually spoke to him and he started telling me about how he built his business, I feel like that's when I really kind of went, okay, you know, that hunger came because I'm like, I'm sitting opposite someone who's been there and done it. It's not a film or a YouTube video that I love. This is, you know, and I think that's what you really, you know, that's what you really bring with Aviard is that you're on the field and you're there saying, look, I've been there, I've done it. Yes, you know, I might have come from a from a good home, but this is where I, you know, this is how low I got, but I put it back round. So, um, 100%, yeah. Tell me about the short film as well. Yeah, the short film, Amani, um, we released it in January 2019. That was a process in itself. Um, I connected with um, actor Javan Wade, who was in Shiro's story in EastEnders and um, Mandem on the Wall. He's now in, yeah, yeah, my, my brother Javan. Now now he's in um, in DC's Doom Patrol, smashing it up in the States. I think they're on season three now. He's doing his thing. So, um, yeah, like we basically connected just before he went out and did his first film, The First Purge in America. And yeah, like it just became brothers, like literally just went on a journey. And then when he came back to the UK, he was like, I want to, you know, tell a story about someone who is battling with their faith. Do you know anyone that kind of <laughs> meets that, um, that, that kind of criteria? And it was literally just like, yeah, like that's, that's, I've got a story. I never really told him in detail and I broke it down to him over breakfast. And then he was just like, yo, like, I want to tell that. And obviously, you know, it's the first time we've worked on a project together. So I'm thinking, oh, is he serious? Is he gassing? But yeah, like he literally, he came back and wrote the spoken word and, and gave me the chills that, you know, I guess I felt in the ambulance because he literally relayed to me how I felt based on what I broke down to him. And so, yeah, I just, I really didn't know how to make films. It's my first ever film, obviously being around masters at the time with, with him and his team it allowed me to play my position well and bring skills from, you know, the, the other businesses that I had to be a producer. But when we released it or when we were filming it, we didn't have any money. It was, we crowdfunded the whole thing. We raised 23,000 pounds to do it. And we, we were literally raising as we were, we raised money as we were going. So I was grinding. I was going to churches. I was on TV. I was on the news. I was on the, um, on the radio. I was on the newspapers everywhere community events just hustling grinding literally cold calling essentially and yeah at the end of it when we released the film in january we had a million views in four days it just literally went viral it just crazy, blew up yeah. online yeah bro it's crazy and then um the other day in uh, in november i think it was we celebrated three million views on the view on the video so yeah we're, i'm at a stage where you know i'm, I'm super blessed to have even told my story, being able to kind of look back in a, in a reflective manner and use my story as a tool for, for change. And I'm just so blessed that we've reached that many young people. And, you know, out of those 3 million, we've had, I've had so many messages of people saying, because of your story, I've decided to go a different way or parents saying, you know, I, I look at my child differently now. I know there's things I need to do. So it's just a blessing to, to to be able to do what I promised in the ambulance, which is steer people away from darkness. I, do you know what? I actually, I'm going to be honest with you. I actually haven't watched the film. I, I even said to my missus, I was like, look, I'm going to get around to watching, you know, get. we need to watch this together because um, she was helping me a little bit when I was preparing for the for, for the podcast. But I look forward to um, I look forward to watching it as well. And like I said, just even reading all the articles that have been published, you know, it just shows that your impact is going to be far greater than probably anything you've you've imagined or you even th even that message in the ambulance i think you're going to go 
past the point you even thought, okay, if I get here, I'm happy because it just like right now with all the racial profiling, um, you know, the, the knife crime, you know, couple that with lockdown, everything that's going on in the world, right? Now more than ever, people need inspiration, especially in our community more more than ever, right? You, you keep seeing things happen and it's just like, it's becoming things that shouldn't be the norm for some reason are starting to become normalized. And, and hopefully, you know, with all the work you're doing, you know, we'll get to a place where the unacceptable is deemed unacceptable. There's no kind of middle ground or if or maybe, you know, because <laughs> a lot of other things are just black and white. Hundred percent. Well, I'm I'm gonna give it my best shot, man. I don't know how long I've got on this earth. None of us do, but I'm a, I'm a run hard. And then when my time's up, I hand over the baton to someone else because you know that's what the generations came before us and did. So I think I was reading something the other day. It was like every generation has to pick up the mantle from the generation before. We have to pick up the baton. So yeah, I've, I'm just playing my my position, and I know that it wasn't my time to go at that point. So. I'm going to go hard until it is my time to go. Um, I live by the mantra that I want to leave this world empty-handed. So I've got a lot to give. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I like that a lot. I might have to steal that. Um, uh, just quote me. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. Uh, talk to me about as well um, our lockdown and that you've got these campaigns as well. So tell me about the inspiration behind the campaigns, how that came about and kind of the, you know, the other side of it, of the impact they had. Cool. Yeah. So, so lockdown, obviously, you know, last year lockdown, the first one just hit everybody. I literally just about to turn 30. I think it was the week of my 30th birthday. I had a 30 birthday planned um, and then lockdown happened. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to re reschedule it for two weeks later. All now I'm waiting for my birthday. To- <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so at the time, at the time, birthday is in a minute. Like, Do you know what I mean? So um, at the time, it spun me a little bit. And I'd say the first couple of the first month or so, I was just, I didn't know what to do. I'd had all my bookings cancelled, all the momentum I built just suddenly overnight stopped. And then basically my management team, my my manager, she said to me, um, during this time, people are going to value those that don't ask for anything. They just constantly serve. And I was just like, okay, you know, know, not people that are kind of, yeah, like let's buy stuff from you. And I always trying to upsell. I think people... You can, there's a, there's a space for that, but that's not what I'm about. So anyway, I was thinking about what I could do with my platform. And I, um, I remember listening to the news and basically they were talking about how lockdown was going to affect young people, but there was no young people talking about it. It was all older people saying, yeah, you know, scientifically, this is what's going to happen, whatever. And I just remember, like, I felt like God said to me, like, literally, like, get young people to talk about what lockdown's like for them. But because I don't like to dwell on, on on kind of the negative side too long, I always try and look at it from a solution-focused angle. I decided to ask questions like, you know, what's made you smile about lockdown? What have you learned about yourself during lockdown? What one thing would you like to change in the world after lockdown? Just questions like that. And essentially, I just got young people to, to send in 20-second 20, 20 videos, young people and, and role models and celebrities, etc. And I just compiled them on my computer got my friend to create a, a sick beat behind it and I just released them week after week um, I think we did about 12 videos did about eight had about 80 videos submitted we did about 45,000 views I was on channel five news um, wow. so many different yeah so many different smiles and stuff that we created and during that time obviously I'm, I'm someone that likes to when I'm doing something I like to think about the future I like to think about what's next so 
I'm I'm an ambassador for the Mayor of London's um, London Needs You campaign, and um, and so I've got a, obviously a connection to the mayor's team. And my manager said, "Look, like let's pitch another idea to them." So I, I put an idea to them about um, this campaign, this kind of motivational video called "You've Got This," and they loved it. And so they gave me the, the funding to basically create like a motivational video that we were going to basically release around the time that kids started to go back to school, which basically just encouraged them, like, you've got this. You know, I know that lockdown's been hard. I know that the world's kind of on you right now, but you've got this and just kept repeating it. So, yeah, we released that um, September last year. And um, the, the kind of height of that, I was on um, Kiss FM and and also they... they um, they had it on the uh, the Olympic Stadium. I think I think it might still be there. I don't know. I've, I haven't actually seen it in person. I've, I've only seen videos. But yeah, so that that's what we did. I just wanted to. I'm I'm all about positivity. I'm all about giving young people platforms to share their voice and to encourage them. And so that's what the campaigns were, man. It was just another another um, avenue to do that, basically. Now, long may listen. Long may it continue because, like I said, it, it's needed now more than ever. So. You know, like I said, uh, I'm I'm an admirer of your work because I think, you know, Thank you, it, it, there's not enough people who understand, or maybe there is, I might be wrong, but the importance of what you're doing, you know? I think there are. There's a lot of people in the field and I just, I want to big them up. There's so many brothers and sisters in the field that have actually been doing more work than I've done and maybe haven't been getting the same level of profile that I've got. So I don't take, I don't take for granted how, you know, there's people that have made amazing, powerful short films that have had 10,000 views. And so my film came out at a time and timing allowed me to kind of get the millions, but that doesn't mean that I'm any better than anyone else. There's so many great people that just are unsung. And I think part of my mission in this life is to, is to help showcase them as well. And just kind of always say, this is a team effort. I'm just one cog in this big mission to, you know, help the next generation. Now for sure. And um, what would you what do you think leads people to knife crime? Because obviously it's a, it's a huge topic that's been going on for years, but particularly also amongst like young black teens, you know, um, and young adults. What would you say is kind of like a, a catalyst or, or some of the things you think that take people down that path? I always remember um, this saying by a friend of mine, author Robin Travis. Um, he says, "Hurt people, hurt people." Right, so. Knives and guns don't kill people. People do. So if you've got someone, a young person that wants to take someone else's life, you have to look back and say, what's going on in their world? You know, what's happening around them that has made them kind of go down that road? I'm not saying that there aren't some people in this world that are just, you know, their head's not in a good place and they just, they have evil in their heart, unfortunately. But I don't believe anyone's born evil. So anytime I see a young person getting involved in something, Nine times out of 10, I can probably track it back to something that's happened in their childhood or something that's happening to them right now. And it's forcing them into a corner where they feel like that's the only way to respond. So I no longer look at young people from a, nah, man, like, you know, this young person is, he's, he's, he's a devil and what's he doing and all this, because everyone's, everyone has a story, everyone has a perspective. And so I, I think that what we as society need to do is really try and humanize it and try and look at young people from the lens of actually this young person is probably a victim himself before he became a perpetrator, before he became the person that, you know, we hear about as the murderer that is, you know, the gang lead or whatever, nine times out of 10, something's probably happened to him or her. And so we have to try and think about 
it from that perspective. And I think it would allow us to really help these young people rather than kind of criminalizing them going forward. Yeah, no, for sure. And in terms of some ways you think of, you know, some ways you think would help in terms of tackling knife crime, what do you think are some of the, the kind of solutions or things that can be put in place to, to help, you know, the, the kind of knife crime pandemic? I think there's so many different things. There's, um, there's early intervention in primary schools, like really holistic intervention, kind of dealing with the child, that the kind of like a children-centered approach that also brings in the parents as well to make sure the parents are okay. Because, you know, on one hand, you can help the child, but if they're going back into, a, you know, for want of a better, a better word, a toxic environment, you're not, you're not really helping the child. You know, you need to help the parents as well and try and, you know, as much as possible, put them all on a straight path. Also, I think that things like restorative justice are really key, allowing, you know, opposite uh, or, 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 you know, opposite gang members, if you want to call them that, to, to sit in a room and reason, you know, because a lot of the time you just find that the person sitting opposite the table is exactly like you. Same problems, same feelings, probably doesn't really want to be about that. So I think that's a really key thing. And then also I think it's about opportunity. I think a lot of the young people that are involved in gang life, if you gave them something else that was more constructive at an earlier stage, they would choose to do that instead. Because, you know, yes, people get into it and talk about, yeah, you know, I made it and I'm making money and I'm, you know, I'm making enough money. But the risks and the the kind of unseen tax element of what they're doing is unreal. And I don't think people really break it down to them. You know, one wrong move, your life's over, you're going to jail for a long time. So I think it's it's really giving them an opportunity to see themselves in a new light to 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 kind of use their street skills or whatever or their 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 hobbies in a different way and just for them to kind of just go down a different pathway that's just three that i can think of there's so many others there's so like music film education there's so many things it's a it's a holistic thing it's not just one thing that's going to solve this issue for sure I, I do agree like you said there's so many variables at play so you'd have to look at umpteen solutions to make sure you're covering all the bases. But um, in terms of also, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk around stop and search, right, as a as a tool and a means to kind of tackle knife crime. But would you say that also is then fueling the racial discrimination? Because from research, you know, publicly it's published that more than anyone else is young black males get stopped the most even if you don't even look like you're involved in that sort of stuff just because. So do you think it's almost become, you know, a problem stop and search because it, it kind of helps more than it hurts? Yeah, because I think statistically, and I remember reading this, is that actually statistically most stop and searches don't like kind of yield a, an arrest. But I do understand that there's a net, there's a need to do it. I just think that it needs to be better informed because at the end of the day, the police are are set up in theory to serve us as as society they're also there to protect property as well but that's a completely different argument but you know for me it's 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 really about working with the young people so that they know their rights they know when a policeman stops them i don't have to give you my name or i don't have to do this or you know i need this as a as a record of you stopping me it's also that the police need to have um you know a different lens that kind of that they're not being biased towards young people that are black or from a particular area. And there's, there's so much work that needs to be done around stop and search that I think there's no real one answer. But I definitely think that there is an element of bias, a massive element of bias in there. And also because the police 
have a history of um, disserving black people and, and, you know, over-policing them. I think that they have to really kind of do majority of the work. I don't think it should come from our community because we didn't start the problem. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done on, on both sides, but I definitely would, like, for example, I'll give you an example. I, as I said, I work with the mayor, you know, or I'm connected to the mayor's office. So I know that they've just brought out a new um, a new kind of framework for for the police service, the Met Police, which is going to be just really, I guess, reforming the way that police do um, uh, kind of police in, the, in, in, in London. So p- anyone listening, it's just about doing your research. Things are changing, not just exclusively because of what happened with George Floyd, but people have been fighting for this for years. And George Floyd was a, was a massive catalyst to move things along a lot quicker and to get people in their feelings where actually now people are saying, no, we've got to do something. So I think there's, there's lots of layers that we're going to see shed and change over the next couple of years. And it's just about us being involved where possible and adding value to the solutions. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's good as well that you shared that information that there is, you know, there is work being done in the behind the scenes. Cause I guess that's everyone's worry that, you know, everyone comes out and it's like, right. Post to black square and Instagram this, everyone gets on, on the bandwagon, but then it's like, okay, how many people are actually actively, you know, working towards solving the problem? And that's always kind of been the, the gap's been so big. The support is always through the roof, but then the actual output in terms of work has always been minimal. So hopefully, you know, what you're doing, working with the mayor's office and the fact that they're actually doing some internal work, we'll start to see some, you know, some real results. And in terms of the narrative as well around, you know, knife crime has largely remained the same. You know, it's drugs, postcode wars, gangs, that sort of thing. And, you know, your story lends, uh, you know, adds a completely different perspective to the picture. So how do you, when you talk to young people, kind of like, what's your message um, in terms of helping them stay on the right path? Like my message is really about choices because no matter what kind of, background anyone comes from everyone still have choices i i guess i say that with a pinch of salt because obviously sometimes people's um backs are against the wall and they have to do things for survival um i also think it's about speaking to trusted adults as well so you know the, the right teachers if you've got mentors around you is, is trying to lean into the support that's there um and, and I, I also think there's a responsibility as much as we put it on the young people, there's also a responsibility of, of the adults around them as well, because, you know, children are born into this world, not by choice. Like, you know, they, they, they're just born into the world. They didn't ask to get born into a family that was dysfunctional or into a time like this or whatever. It's, they're just here. So I think we as society also have to kind of adopt that. It takes a village to raise a child mentality. So I never fully put it on the child's, shoulders i also look at it and say that as a village what can we do in order to step in and support young people that are struggling or you know be mentors or be teachers or be governors in school all of those things are also important when i speak to young people and, and the people around them basically yeah and what, can you share some like have you got any stories of you know some examples of the work you you're doing with um you know aviard inspires in terms of young people you've mentored it'd be great just to kind of hear one or two stories of how you know it's shaped their journeys and you know and you know what they've gone yeah so i'll give i'll give you two the two that come to mind the first one is is about the film um so uh, i when i did the you've got this campaign 
one of the young people in it, um, when we were working with the, the production company Fully Focused, they have like a youth team. And so because we'd put the film on their platform, obviously their youth team was super excited to work with me because they'd seen the film. And the lady that works there basically said to me, like, there's this one boy that you need to hear his story because we work with him because of that, because of your film. And I was like, what do you mean? And when I jumped on the, on the phone, he basically said, I watched your film. So I was involved in a gang and stuff. And then I watched your film the night we were meant to ride out on somebody. And because I watched your film, I made a decision that I, I wasn't going to go. And I stayed at home. I, I, I said at that point, I'm not going to go out with my friends. And my friends still went. One of them died and one of them went to jail for murder. And he was just like, because of your film, it saved my life when I watched it. That to me blew my mind because it was like, it's a tangible story. It's evidence that, you know, my story has an impact when someone is ready to make that decision to turn their life around. That's the first thing. The second one was um, part of the film projects as well is I, I went into schools and did workshops in primary schools and secondary schools. And one of the primary schools I was working in, um, this young person, like, you know, really good, sweet kid, like just a good, a good boy. The teacher was telling me about his backstory and how his brother was in jail and stuff like that. And I think he's in jail for murder. And this young person was part of the reason why his brother got convicted because he kind of told his parents that I heard them talking about stabbing someone and something like that. Anyway, after the six, uh, the six month program, a uh, six week program, sorry, he came up to me and he said, um, so I just want to tell you something. Um, you went and visited my brother in jail. And I said, huh? And when he told me his brother's name, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that kid. And he said, yeah, and you spoke to him and you had an impact on him. And I didn't tell you that you spoke to me. This kid's in year six, bear in mind. He said, I didn't tell you that you spoke to me. I, I didn't tell you that you spoke to him before. I'd just been in your class. But because of, your, because of meeting you and making and how you made me feel about myself, I'm going to go a different path. I'm going to make my family proud. And I nearly cried, bro. Yeah, that, that even to me, I'm like, that's a lot. You hear that, that will definitely move you. Bro, I was moved because that to me is, t that that's changing the pathway for this kid. I'm not saying that he would have necessarily automatically gone down the same road as his brother, but my intervention, and I don't, I don't, when I do interventions, I don't talk about knives. The first bit is about knives and me getting stabbed in the film, but the rest of it is about identity and, you know, your habits and your mindset and your goals and your relationships. Because that's what to me is, what people struggle with. I can do weapons awareness courses forever, but you're aware of the weapon, but you don't know yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? So that was those, those two things for me, those two, and there's so many more, but those two to me really stand out as stories that I will go to my grave with because that means that I made an impact here on this earth while I was here. And I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled that I was used as a, as a vessel for those kids. Do you know what I mean? Also, I wanted to ask you about Apprentice UK. Apprentice Nation. Apprentice Nation. Forgive me. Oh, you're good. You're good. Don't worry. Apprentice Nation UK. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. How did you, how did that come about and how did you get involved in that? So Apprentice Nation, um, my mentor, um, Stephen Green, um, I met him many years ago, or one of my mentors, shall I say, I met him many years ago and he was the founding chairman of the NCS National Citizen Service. So I did a lot of work with him at that time and then he basically, and, and also he, uh, he ran a company called Orange Rock Corps, or Rock Corps, sorry. Um, and they used to do concerts and volunteer stuff. And basically he just saying to me, you know, I really want to get into this uh, apprentice space and, you know, I'd love you to be part of the founding team of it. 
And so, yeah, from day one, from when he first came up the idea, I've added value to it. I've, you know, suggested artists. I've been there when they've been working out the slogans or how to present the ideas. So I'm part of the family, part of the core team. And basically Apprentice Nation is a, is a platform where young people can learn about alternative pathways after school. So, you know, not everyone wants to go to university. Some people want to go and get an apprenticeship and just start earning money, start, you know, study, kind of study and earn money at the same time. So we just wanted to normalize the conversation so that less young people basically fall in, fall through the gaps because they don't go to university. So for us, it was a great, the last one we did in, um, in October, was it October? Yeah, October we did. We had Crepton Conan, Tiny Temper, Miss Banks, Ray, all performing in like you know a live stream concert and then we had so many young people sign up online and go through like a like a um like a a masterclass webinar kind of you know series of like you know just learning different tips how to do interviews what about wellness what like just so many different things i could sit here forever and give you a list but for us it was just again just practically giving young people the tools they need to succeed and you know encouraging them and you know it's a free concert so you know, it, it kind of entices them to 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 to, to want to get involved, and in then we give them something that's even better, basically. Yeah, no, I, I like the concept because, like you said, especially with young people, their attention spans—it's hard to get them engaged. But like you said, a free concert, one of their favorite artists, yeah, is is genius, and then actually add the value of you know the career paths and everything else on top. Yeah, love the concept. Um, so what's next for what's next for you and uh, and Aviard as well? So um, actually, actually, I'm doing some more films. So that's what the focus is right now. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm trying to get in my director bag at the moment. I'm trying to, you know, trying to, cause I produced the first short film, but I know that there's amazing producers out there in the world that I'd love to work with. So I'm trying to make sure my eye really works from a director's standpoint as well. So I'm actually, I'm actually directing a new short film um, in the next couple of months. Um, once we're outside of this lockdown, um, and then also working on another another short film. So there'll just be there'll be more films, more content. Um, yeah, like I mean, there's there, there's so many things in the pipeline. Do you know what I mean? But the things that I can I can share is definitely immediately the films. The films are going to be what kind of people see probably before anything else. And then some of the other stuff is I can't wait to to show the world, mate. I love that. But, um, the uh, so as you know, the title of the podcast is Can I Get a Picture. And the closing question of the podcast is, who's the one person that inspires you that you love to have your picture taken with and why? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. I've taken my picture. I've taken, I've taken pictures with lots of people that I look up to. Um, do you know what? The one person I haven't met yet, and I, I, just because it's the first person that came to mind, is Will Smith. I think for me, meeting Will because of the impact he had on me when I was a teenager, by watching The Fresh Prince and just... Yeah, just growing with him. I think that would be a moment when I meet him and just reasoning with him. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably loads of other people, but definitely, definitely Will Smith. Um, yeah. Thanks again to Amani for taking the time to chat with me and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod and we'll be back again with another episode. 